Hello, mythical astronomers, friends, and patrons. This is your tour guide of fake ancient history, Lucifer Means Lightbringer. It's time to address the idea of there having once been two moons in the sky. That issue being, was there really ever a second moon? The story of the second moon comes from a Daenerys chapter of A Game of Thrones, and though you've heard the passage many times before, let's take a listen one more time, because Carthine myth ages even better than Carthine wine. A traitor from Carth once told me that dragons came from the moon, Blondorea said as she warmed a towel over the fire. Silvery wet hair tumbled across her eyes as Danny turned her head, curious. The moon? He told me the moon was an egg, Khaleesi, the Liseni girl said. Once there were two moons in the sky, but one wandered too close to the sun and cracked from the heat. A thousand thousand dragons poured forth and drank the fire of the sun. That is why dragons breathe flame. One day the other moon will kiss the sun too, and then it will crack and the dragons will return. The two Dothraki girls giggled and laughed. You are foolish, strawhead slave, Iri said. Moon is no egg. Moon is God, woman wife of sun. It is known. Now, I have a fairly high degree of confidence in the general idea that there was some kind of moon collision event in the sky in the ancient past, and that the resulting meteor impacts on the planet were the cause of the long night. But were there actually two moons? After all, it's possible that there has only ever been one moon, and that this one moon took a comet impact in the Dawn Age and cracked off enough moon meteor material to shower the planet with the meteor dragons and cause the long night and all the rest without actually being destroyed completely. Perhaps the explosion was so catastrophic for ancient humans in this region that they later figured it must have been an entirely separate moon which perished and is no more, and thus wrote of there having been two moons. To be honest, I can't dismiss this possibility entirely, even though I favor the two moons scenario. Now, my main focus on this podcast, of course, is to reveal Martin's internal mythology and analyze it, and to try to solve these various symbolic puzzles and interpret them as best we can. Sometimes I feel confident enough to come to a moderately definitive conclusion, and other times it seems more appropriate to present you all with a range of potential interpretations. This moon question is somewhere in between the two. I have a pretty strong theory supporting the idea that there were in fact two moons that functioned like a pair of opposites, but I can also see the arguments for one changing moon or a moon with two halves. Essentially, what I'm seeing is the ice and fire dichotomy manifesting in the lunar symbolism of the story. For example, some moon maidens seem to be associated with ice, and some with fire. I believe the best interpretation of this is a two-moon system, just as the Carthine myth suggests, with one moon being associated with ice and one with fire. But it's also possible that we're really talking about one moon with both an ice and fire nature, either as two stages in a transformation cycle or as two halves of a whole, the bright side of the moon versus the dark side of the moon, if you will. The icy and fiery moon maidens might be showing us different aspects of one moon, in other words. The symbolism for either scenario would be very similar. So here's what I'm going to do. Having given you that series of caveats, I'm going to present the two moons theory to you like I normally would. Although I will be primarily planting my flag on the two moons theory, I'll occasionally reference the question of one or two moons as we go. 
You guys can form your own conclusions, and I look forward to hearing your comments and ideas. The main part of the two moons hypothesis is as follows. One moon is associated with fire and fire magic, and the other with ice and ice magic. Just as comets and meteors and volcanoes and strange white trees and dragon glass are all sources or conduits of magic in this fantasy story, I would suspect that our hypothetical moons of ice and fire are inherently magical in nature as well, and may even be sources of magic that people can tap into. The moon which was destroyed in the Dawn Age and gave birth to the fiery dragon meteors would have been the fire moon, and the one that remains in the sky and inspires the others to victory would be the ice moon. I'd also like to add that I have seen some indications that the ice moon may have taken a bit of shrapnel from the fire moon explosion, just as the planetos did. More on this to come. By now we've gotten a general idea of how Martin is using mythical astronomy inside the scenes of the book. He uses the characters in various scenes to play the roles of sun and moon and comet, and then has them do the celestial tango. If Martin is in fact thinking about a fire moon, ice moon scenario, you know he will certainly embed that pattern all over the place in many of the Lightbringer forging scenes that we know and love. As you might have guessed by the fact that I've made this two moons idea the subject of a series of podcasts, Martin does seem to be doing this very thing, showing us repeated examples of moon things which are associated with either fire or ice, and often paired together with one another. The Moons of Ice and Fire series will dig into these examples, which seem to come in three forms. Number one, opposite types of moon maidens, icy ones and fiery ones. Daenerys and Melisandre are the epitome of fiery lunar queens, and we've also got Cersei and Lady Catelyn, Sansa, Ygritte, and many others. For icy moon queens, we'll start with the Night's Queen and Lyanna Stark, but there's also Val the Wildling Princess, Jane Poole, Alice Karstark, and more. Number two, opposite types of places, buildings, or cities, which seem to serve as proxies for the ice and fire moons. Places like Ashai, Dragonstone, Valyria, and the Dragon Pit in King's Landing for the fire moon, and for the ice moon, places like the Eyrie, White Harbor, the Temple of the Moon Singers in Bravos, and, of course, the Wall. Number three, opposite kinds of monstrous moon children. Dragons, who serve as the symbolic children of the fire moon, and the others, who seem to serve the same role for the ice moon, as you will see. As an extension of the opposite types of moon maidens thing, we often find solar kings with two lunar wives, and even a couple of solar queens with two lunar husbands, just to mix things up. If you think about it, there are many instances of someone having two wives or two lady loves, and I've found that many of these love triangles seem to be showing us the pattern of a solar king with an ice moon queen and a fire moon queen. The really obvious one is Rhaegar, who first has children with Elia of Dorne, a fire moon maiden, if you will, due to all the sun and snake and desert symbolism of Dorne, and then Rhaegar has a child with Lyanna Stark, she of the Blue Winter Roses. Aegon the Conqueror has a similar thing going with Rhaenys and Visenya, though their fire-moon-ice-moon symbolism isn't quite as obvious at first. However, it's quite compelling when you dig into it, as we will. Essentially, we are going to use the two moons idea as a vehicle to explore the dichotomy of ice and fire that runs through all the magical elements of the story. Ice and fire are the yin and yang of this tale, and having gotten to know the fiery side of things quite well, it's long past time to turn our attention to the icy affairs of the North. 
It's going to be a lot of fun, and we'll see if we can't eventually get down to the core of what George is saying with his overarching theme of ice and fire. In this first installment, we'll start by examining the prototype of all icy lunar queens, the corpse queen of the Night's King, who is sometimes known as the Night's Queen. We'll compare her to Melisandre, as I think this is perhaps the clearest example of ice and fire moon queen symbolism. I believe that these ice and fire pairings are indicative of a two-moon scenario, like I said, but here's the thing. Whether the correct answer is two moons or one moon with two halves, everything that we'll be exploring will still be quite worthwhile. To be honest, I am sure that most of you are probably more interested in the others in general than whether or not there used to be two moons, but again, the two moons question is simply the mythical astronomy backdrop and context for our exploration of the others. No matter how many moons there are, the ice and fire dichotomy is one of the central themes of the story, clearly, and the two moons hypothesis is really just a unifying framework within which to analyze all the various examples of ice and fire symbolism. All of these examinations will bear enjoyable fruit to eat because we'll be talking about how the others were made and what really went down at the night fort, about why exactly a shy is the way it is, and what exactly the deal is with the oily and greasy black stone. We'll be talking about the Night's King and his corpse queen, Rhaegar and Lyanna, Stannis and Melisandre, Aegon, Rhaenys, and Visenya, about ice dragons and shadow binders and the true meaning of Jon Snow's name. And, of course, we'll be talking about Dawn and Lightbringer. At some point in this series, we'll also get into metatextual clues which simply pertain to the idea of there having been two moons— phrasing about the moon having a twin, or about there having been eight celestial wanderers instead of the classical seven, and a few other random things which might point to there having once been a second moon. We'll even ponder the faces of Euron Crozai and Sir Waymar Royce as sky maps of the heavens, and won't that be fun? Now, a bit of housekeeping. I'm doing a teensy-weensy experiment with format in this new series, and that I'm going to make shorter episodes more often instead of the two-and-a-half-hour monstrosities that I've been wheeling out so far. I've already written a good amount of this series, and the symbolism is quite dense, so I've found that breaking things up a bit more helps to keep the ideas more clearly defined. This first episode will be about an hour, and the next one will be around an hour and a half, and I think that's about the range that we'll be in for the next few episodes. So, let me know what you think. As ever, I find myself brimming with gratitude, so I must thank our Patreon supporters, without whom I'd just be some guy in a dark cave eating weirwood paste with no one to talk to. We'll be creating some new slots on Patreon very soon, so check that out at luciformeanslightbringer.com. That's also where you can find the matching text for this episode if you prefer to read and listen, or bounce back and forth. Thanks to Mr. Martin Lewis of the Echoes of Ice and Fire blog for his fine vocal acting, and thanks to the Amethyst Koala for her vocal performances as well. And thanks to John Walsh for our custom theme music. Check out his YouTube channel, John Walsh Guitar, for more of his work. All right, so let's dig into some juicy book quotes, shall we? We'll start with the basics. Moon maidens, or lunar queens, we might say, since not all are, strictly speaking, maidens. Astronomy isn't concerned with chastity, though, so if I use the term moon maiden a little bit loosely, you'll understand what I mean. Another type of moon maiden. This section is brought to you by the support of three mighty patrons. Matthias Mormont, the sea goat of the bottomless depths, earthly avatar of Heavenly House Capricorn, Viseria Sunbreaker of the Sacred Order of the Black Hand, and Patchface of Motley Wisdom priest of the Church of Starry Wisdom. 
So far, we've spent basically all of our time together on these podcasts drenched in fire and blood. We've spent all this time talking about the Fire Moon and its dragon meteor children, and we've found that Daenerys and Melisandre are probably the most unambiguous avatars of this moon. Daenerys reenacted the burning of the moon in the sun's fire and the birthing of the moon dragons in the scene that I nicknamed the Alchemical Wedding, and Melisandre does the same in the scene beneath Storm's End where the Shadow Baby is born. We broke down the Alchemical Wedding scene in detail at the end of our very first episode, so we don't need to quote that here. We've quoted from the Shadow Baby scene a couple of times as well, but I would like to pull a couple of the relevant lines from that one so they are fresh in our minds. It's important to understand that Melisandre's Shadow Babies are roughly equivalent to the black meteors remembered as moon dragons. There was no answer, but a soft rustling, and then a light bloomed amidst the darkness. Her eyes were hot coals, and the sweat that dappled her skin seemed to glow with a light of its own. Melisandre shone. The last two lines show Melisandre glowing like the moon as it exploded in meteor childbirth, the light in the darkness. But this glow is only momentary, and next we see the transformation process and the birth of Lightbringer process. Blood ran down her thighs, black as ink. Her cry might have been agony or ecstasy or both, and Davos saw the crown of the child's head push its way out of her. Two arms wriggled free, grasping, black fingers coiling around Melisandre's straining thighs, pushing until the whole of the shadow slid out into the world and rose taller than Davos, tall as the tunnel, towering above the boat. He had only an instant to look at it before it was gone, twisting between the bars of the portcullis and racing across the surface of the water. But that instant was long enough. He knew that shadow, as he knew the man who'd cast it. There's the burning black blood indicating fire transformation, as well as the cry of agony and ecstasy for Nissa Nissa's cry of anguish and ecstasy. As for the shadow child, we have the implication of a shadow crown, black fingers coiling like snakes, and the shadows sliding out into the world language, the last of which makes us think of a shadow emerging from the fire moon and covering the world when the meteors fell. We also have confirmation that this was indeed Stannis's shadow. This is essentially a shadow version of Stannis. Stannis is, of course, a prime Azor High Reborn symbol, what with the flaming sword and the Azor High Reborn moniker. He's impregnated Melisandre, the fiery moon woman, with his Azor Ahai seed, only to birth black shadow versions of himself. All of this fits the symbolism of Lightbringers forging in the heart of the second moon, which we've followed so far in these essays, and all of these symbols appear in Danny's alchemical wedding scene as well. George has given us further clues about black dragons and black shadows being related symbols. Mel's fire vision in A Dance with the Dragons is a great example, where she refers to the dragons as shadows. Through curtains of fire, great winged shadows wheeled against the hard blue sky. Drogon's official nickname is actually the Winged Shadow, and as we've examined in previous episodes, he has a nice habit of blotting out the sun with his wings, just as the Black Moon Meteors did. In other words, Daenerys birthed a winged shadow dragon, and Melisandre birthed a black shadow assassin, and both of them symbolize Lightbringer and the moon meteors that brought the darkness of the Long Night. And my god, check out the descriptions of the dragon skulls! 
This is from A Game of Thrones, as Tyrion remembers his encounter with the dragon skulls in the dark chamber below the Red Keep. He had expected to find them impressive, perhaps even frightening. He had not thought to find them beautiful, yet they were, as black as onyx, polished smooth, so the bones seemed to shimmer in the light of his torch. They liked the fire, he sensed. He'd thrust the torch into the mouth of one of the larger skulls, and made the shadows leap and dance on the wall behind him. The teeth were long, curving knives of black diamond. In A Storm of Swords, Tyrion makes love to Shay in this chamber and notes that the black teeth of one of the skulls are almost as tall as Shay, meaning those knives like black diamonds are actually more like swords. Black swords. Arya has two scenes in this chamber as well, and the language is basically the same. Another skull loomed ahead, the biggest monster of all. But Arya did not even slow. She leapt over a ridge of black teeth as tall as swords, dashed through hungry jaws, and threw herself against the door. Dragon's teeth equal black swords, that's simple enough. When Arya returns to the dragon skull chamber later in A Game of Thrones, she calls one of the teeth a dagger made of darkness and refers to the teeth collectively as jagged shadows. This is similar language to the scene where the shadow baby version of Stannis actually kills Renly. In that scene, the shadow baby carries a sword described as the shadow sword, and then the shadow of a blade that was not there, which ties the shadow sword to Stannis's lightbringer. Azor High's shadow has a shadow sword, in other words, and the dragon's teeth are like swords and daggers made of darkness and shadow. Thus, you can see that Mel's black shadow assassins are parallel symbols to the fire-breathing dragons, and Melisandre and Daenerys are parallel symbols of the fiery moon that gave birth to them. Two other familiar symbols of the black meteors are the Night's Watch brothers, men who name themselves swords, the swords in the darkness, and who are compared to black shadows on a couple of occasions. And then we have these smoke-dark Valerian steel swords, you guys should all be familiar with their symbolism and how it matches that of the dragons and Mel's shadow babies. Smoke, darkness, and shadow. Black swords, black dragons, Azor High. These things all go together. Now, this whole mythical astronomy thing really started with drawing a parallel between the moon and the women that we refer to as moon maidens. So if we're going to start talking about the ice moon, or a theoretical ice moon, we need to find some icy moon maidens. Nobody fits this description more so than the corpse bride of the Night's King. Most of the fandom usually refers to her as the Night's Queen, although this phrase actually never appears in any A Song of Ice and Fire material. Nevertheless, if she was Night King's Queen, then she was the Night's Queen for all intents and purposes, so both terms work in my mind, and I'll use both interchangeably. The phrase Weirwood Net is, of course, not found in the books either, but it's a useful term, so, you know, whatever. In A Storm of Swords, we hear the story of the Night's King and his corpse queen from Bran while his little company takes shelter at the Night Fort, searching for a way through the wall. As the sun began to set, the shadows of the towers lengthened, and the wind blew harder, sending gusts of dry dead leaves rattling through the yards. The gathering gloom put Bran in mind of another of old Nan's stories, the tale of Night's King. He had been the thirteenth man to lead the Night's Watch, she said. A warrior who knew no fear. And that was the fault in him, she would add. For all men must know fear. 
A woman was his downfall. A woman glimpsed from atop the wall, with skin as white as the moon, and eyes like blue stars. Fearing nothing, he chased her, and caught her, and loved her. Though her skin was cold as ice, and when he gave his seed to her, he gave his soul as well. He brought her back to the night fort, and proclaimed her a queen, and himself her king. And with strange sorceries, he bound his sworn brothers to his will. For thirteen years they had ruled, night's king and his corpse queen. Till finally, the Stark of Winterfell and Joraman of the Wildlings had joined to free the Watch from bondage. After his fall, when it was found that he had been sacrificing to the others, all records of Night's King had been destroyed, his very name forbidden. The Corpse Queen has skin as pale as the moon and eyes like blue stars. In other words, she combines the symbolism of the moon and the others. It's pretty easy to name her a moon woman, since it's right there in her description, but she doesn't seem anything like the fiery moon maidens who give birth to dragons. I don't know what else to call her except an icy moon maiden, and I don't see how she can be symbolizing the same thing as Melisandre or Daenerys, who both have the fire inside them, who both have such a clear affinity for heat, and who are both fire-made flesh in a sense. I can only interpret Night's Queen as symbolizing some sort of, well, ice moon. So who was this Night's Queen? Actually, the right question to ask is more, what was she? That's really the key here. We need to understand her nature. What truth lies behind this legend of the moon-pale maiden with skin as cold as ice? In order to determine what she might have been, it's helpful to first say what she was not. Even though she's remembered as a corpse queen, I do not think that she was white. Why? Well, let me ask you. Have you ever seen any whites that anyone could fall in love with? Any that could appreciate a nice romantic dinner out on the town? No, of course not. The cold whites are basically zombies. They may have some tiny remnant of memory of their former lives. For example, the whited versions of Jafer Flowers and Othor seem to know where to find Mormont's chambers, although that could be a remote directive from the Night's King or whoever's animating the others. But in any case, the cold whites seem to be under the total control of the others, or whatever icy presence animates them. They are completely without mercy, showing no hesitation in killing their former friends and brothers. They have literally no interest in anything other than killing. So I think we could rule out the idea of the Corpse Queen being a cold white in the sense that we're familiar with. Now, Cold Hands is a cold white who seems to have independent thought, but he very significantly does not have the blue star eyes, while the Corpse Queen does. So I'm not sure how much that helps us. Also, Cold Hands, like other whites, does not have pumping blood or any sort of vital processes like digestion or breathing, which wouldn't make Corpse Queen much of a bride. As we'll discuss in a moment, I believe there's good evidence that the Night's King sired offspring with the Corpse Queen, which would be difficult if she was any kind of ice white with no sort of internal body processes. But who knows? Perhaps the offspring were entirely magical and not really babies at all. Neither do I think that Night's Queen can be an other, at least not like the others that we've seen. We've never seen a distinctly female other. In fact, we don't even know if the others have a gender. If anything, they're probably male, since we've seen Craster's wives refer to the whites as brothers and sons, an idea that we'll come back to in a moment. 
Knight's king was said to have made sweet love to his corpse queen, and I do not think this would be possible if she were an other. From what we've seen of the others, they are so cold that one can scarcely breathe when near them. When Sam sees the other in a storm of swords... He was so scared, he might have pissed himself all over again, but the cold was in him, a cold so savage that his bladder felt frozen solid. And here's Will and Sir Waymar in the prologue of A Game of Thrones. Will, where are you? Sir Waymar called up. Can you see anything? He was turning in a slow circle, suddenly wary, his sword in hand. He must have felt them, as Will felt them. There was nothing to see. Answer me! Why is it so cold? It was cold. Shivering, Will clung more tightly to his perch. His face pressed hard against the trunk of the sentinel. Sir Waymar's blade actually turns white with frost before shattering from the cold, just as the last hero's sword was said to snap from the cold when he journeyed into the frozen dead lands. Of course, Sam tells us that, based on his research in the Night's Watch annals, it seems that the others come when it's cold, or else it gets cold when they come. Tormund gives us the real lowdown in A Dance with Dragons, though. Tormund turned back. You know nothing. You killed a dead man, aye. I heard. A man's killed a hundred. A man can fight the dead, but when their masters come, when the white mists rise up, how do you fight a mist, crow? So, raise your hands if you think a human could have sex with an other and live. I kind of doubt it. If they can freeze steel so cold that it shatters, a penis has no chance, surely. The shrinkage would be merciless, even if one were to eat enough Viagra to get that weird priapism thing happening, which sounds kind of unpleasant. Now, I know that the tales speak of wildling women laying with the others to produce hybrid offspring, but I think this is only partially true. There were hybrids created, but not by others having sex with humans. Rather, I think what we're talking about here are transformations. The cold was inside her. This section is sponsored through Patreon by The Mystery Knight, known only as Rusted Revolver. The Lilith Walker, Great Dane Friend and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Pisces, as well as the Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Virgo and Libra, who is Sir Dionysus of House Galadon, wielder of the Just Maid, a Valerian steel sword with a milk glass pommel. The Corpse Queen with moon pale skin and blue star eyes is probably more like an icy version of Melisandre, a kind of winter priestess, if you will. Here I will refer you to an essay by my very good friend, Dern Durandin of the Westeros.org forums, entitled, One God, Two Gods, Red God, Blue God, Melisandre and the Night's Queen. And by the way, extra points to Dern Durandin for making a Dr. Seuss reference in the title of his essay. Now I'm in pretty much total agreement with Dern's analysis on this one, and he does a more thorough comparison between the two than I will hear, and from a slightly different perspective. So I recommend checking out that essay as well as the great common thread that follows. This was a truly groundbreaking essay in my mind, and much of what you're about to hear in this section is based on his essay. So, you know, all glory and fame to him and his house. The crux of the idea is this. The corpse queen is a moon woman who has blue star eyes and cold, pale flesh. Melisandre is a moon woman who has red star eyes and warm, pale flesh. 
as we see in these quotes from A Dance with Dragons. After the warmth of the King Solar, the turnpike stair felt bone-chillingly cold. Wind's rising, milady, the sergeant warned Melisandre, as he handed John back his weapons. You might want to warm a cloak. I have my faith to warm me. The red woman walked beside John down the steps. John could feel her heat, even through his wool and boiled leather. The sight of them, arm in arm, was drawing curious looks. And then a bit later, when John sees Melisandre and momentarily thinks he's seeing Ygritte, there are more signs of Mel's internal heat. He did not understand how he could have taken her for Ygritte. She was taller, thinner, older. Though the moonlight washed years from her face, mist rose from her nostrils and from pale hands naked to the night. You will freeze your fingers off, John warned. If that is the will of R'hllor, night's powers cannot touch one whose heart is bathed in God's holy fire. Mist rising from Mel's hands indicate that they're very warm, like a person's warm breath. And then after Mel successfully calls Ghost over to her... John let out a white breath. He's not always so... Warm? Warmth calls to warmth, Jon Snow. Her eyes were two red stars, shining in the dark. At her throat, her ruby gleamed, a third eye glowing brighter than the others. John had seen ghosts' eyes blazing red the same way, when they caught the light just right. He turned back to the Red Priestess. John could feel her warmth. Davos feels it too in A Clash of Kings. He actually feels Melisandre's warmth before he is aware of her presence. Then one night, as he was finishing his supper, Davos felt a queer flush come over him. He glanced up through the bars, and there she stood in shimmering scarlet, with her great ruby at her throat, her red eyes gleaming as bright as the torch that bathed her. Melisandre, he said, with a calm he did not feel. Her red eyes blazed like twin fires and seemed to stare deep into his soul. I think it's pretty clear that Melisandre actually generates heat in a manner that is above and beyond normal warm-blooded people, just as the Corpse Queen has skin as cold as ice. Mel isn't so hot that you can't touch her, however, and I suspect the same would be true for the Corpse Queen. Cold, but not hundreds of degrees below zero cold like the others and the Whites. As for those red star eyes that Melisandre has, I think they are meant to be more than the red eyes of an albino. They could be the result of Melisandre's illusion magic, certainly, or even a legacy of her possible father, Bloodraven. That's a theory that I kind of like. You can check out uh, RadioWesteros.com if you want to get the full Melisandre is Bloodraven's daughter theory. But I favor the notion that Melisandre's red eyes are primarily a reflection of some kind of internal fire the same one which makes her skin so warm to the touch and which makes her impervious to the cold. The question is, how did Melisandre become this way? Through fire transformation, of course, as we've discussed. The Red Priestess shuddered. Blood trickled down her thigh, black and smoking. The fire was inside her, an agony, an ecstasy, filling her, searing her, transforming her. Shimmers of heat traced patterns on her skin, insistent as a lover's hand. She was weeping, and her tears were flame, 
and still she drank it in. We've talked about fire transformation in a symbolic sense as representing the burning of the second moon and the transformation of its moon rock and moon blood into black bloodstone meteors, the bleeding stars of darkness. And we've seen fire transformation pop up in several forms, always associated with burning blood and black blood. Danny dreams of having her blood boil, the black dragons have burning black blood, and people speak of the more metaphorical black blood of the Night's Watch. But I want to speak in literal terms here about Melisandre's specific fire transformation process. So set aside the symbolism for a minute. That's right. We're going to talk actual, actual blood. It's not a metaphor, I promise. Now, Beric was definitely killed and resurrected, but I do not believe that Mel was resurrected. She doesn't seem to have the loss of memory, will, or sense of self that Beric does, nor does she have any of the death symbols which are draped all over Beric like a starry cloak. I believe that the transforming her phrase in the last passage is key. It indicates a gradual process. This would seem to be corroborated by Mel's inner monologue about her lack of need for sleep, which also indicates a gradual process taking place. Some nights she drowsed, but never for more than an hour. One day, Melisandre prayed she would not sleep at all. One day, she would be free of dreams. Mel apparently does not need to eat either, although she can. Does my lady wish to break her fast? asked Devon. Food. Yes, I should eat. Some days she forgot. Rolor provided her with all the nourishment her body needed, but that was something best concealed from mortal men. Relore gives her all the nourishment she needs. In other words, Melisandre's body runs on fire magic. She places mortal men in a separate category from herself. And what does that make her, then? I think it's clear that Mel is something more than human. She's becoming a creature of fire, fire-made flesh, so to speak. And this is how I think we should think about the corpse bride of the Night's King, as an ice priestess, a winter queen, ice-made flesh a sorceress who was transformed by ice magic. Melisandre has the fire inside her in her transformation scene, just as Danny does when she walks into Drogo's pyre and wakes the dragons, another scene symbolizing fire transformation, of course. Interestingly, Martin may be hinting at a similar parallel process with ice right in the prologue of A Game of Thrones, when Garrod is talking about frostbite. Take a look. I saw men freeze last winter, and the one before, when I was half a boy. Everyone talks about snows, forty foot deep, and how the ice wind comes howling out of the north. But the real enemy is the cold. It steals up on you, quieter than well, and at first you shiver and your teeth chatter, and you stamp your feet and dream of mulled wine and nice hot fires. It burns, it does. Nothing burns like the cold, but only for a while. Then it gets inside you and starts to fill you up, and after a while, you don't have the strength to fight it. It's easier just to sit down or go to sleep. They say you don't feel any pain toward the end. First you go weak and drowsy, and everything starts to fade. And then it's like sinking into a sea of warm milk, peaceful-like. Such eloquence, Garrod. 
Sir Waymar observed. I never suspected you had it in you. I've had the cold in me too, Lordling. Garrod pulled back his hood, giving Sir Waymar a good long look at the stumps where his ears had been. Two ears, three toes, and the little finger of my left hand. I got off light. We found my brother frozen at his watch, with a smile on his face. Here we have two lines describing frostbite as having the cold get inside you. Frostbite is, of course, a kind of cold transformation process that leaves you frozen and dead, and thus I think it serves as a good metaphor for magical ice transformation in general, whether we're speaking of creating others or whites or icy people like the Night's Queen. I do not think that it is a coincidence that this talk of having the cold inside you is used in proximity to both the others and humans becoming whites. At the end of this chapter, Waymar and Will both end up with the cold inside them in the sense that they are transformed by cold magic into whites with blue star eyes. Garrod escapes only to be beheaded later by Ned's sword ice, which is kind of like having the cold inside you, and Craster even later directly compares Ned's ice to frostbite, joking about how the bite took Garrod's head as well as his ears, which were claimed by frostbite years earlier. So, we can see that all three of these black brothers had the cold inside them in one way or another. Waymar and Garrod were both killed with icy swords for that matter. The sword of the other was made of ice, and Ned's sword is called ice. Now that's having the cold inside you. We saw the same language earlier when Sam was in close proximity to the other. The line was, The cold was in him, a cold so savage that his bladder felt frozen solid. Earlier in that chapter, as Sam is sleepwalking with snow piled up on his back and caked about his feet and legs, it's even described as a pair of white greaves, meaning snow armor, there's a line which says, and the cold was in him. Now when I look for repeated phrases like having the cold inside you or having the fire inside you, I tend to look to see if they occur in close proximity to the subject of their symbolism. Here we see the cold inside you wording next to an other, ice made flesh. And there's the suggestion of Sam being transformed because his bladder feels frozen solid. Earlier, Sir Waymar and Garrod talked of having the cold inside you, and that too came right before an encounter with the others. I believe all of this implies the existence of a cold transformation process, akin to what Melisandre is undergoing with fire transformation. Further corroboration of this may be found in the fact that the others possess human-like qualities, like bones and blood, as well as behavior like speech laughter, coordinated movements and attacks, and their use of armor, horses, and swords. These are all indications that the others may have once been human in some sense. And if that's the case, then they've clearly undergone some kind of icy transformation. I mean, it's actually really basic. Unless the others were always like that, then they must have undergone some sort of icy transformation. So we can safely conclude that such a process exists. I think a great way to demonstrate the idea of icy transformation is to take some of the lines from Mel's fire transformation paragraph that we just read and switch the language from fire to ice. It comes out something like this. Through curtains of snow and mist, white shadow stirred against a cold black sky. The blue priestess shuddered. Pale blood trickled down her thigh, blue and steaming. The cold was inside her. An agony, an ecstasy, filling her, freezing her, transforming her. 
Shimmers of ice trace patterns on her skin, insistent as a lover's hand. She was weeping, and her tears froze on her cheeks, and still she drank it in. As you can see, all you have to do is flip fire for ice, and Melisandre pretty much becomes Night's Queen. The terms white shadows and pale blue blood are taken from descriptions of the others, who are many times referred to as white shadows and who apparently bleed pale blue blood, as we saw in the scene where Sam kills one with a dragon glass dagger. In his tremendous essay, Dern Durndon brings up one of Martin's short stories, a children's novel called The Ice Dragon. The protagonist is a young girl named Adara, who has a special relationship with Winter, and with an ice dragon whose description matches perfectly the ice dragons in the world of ice and fire. Transparent wings, pale blue eyes, made of living ice, and larger than fire dragons. Adara is marked by Winter as Winter's own child, when the cold steals into her mother's birthing bed, creeping into the blankets and into the womb itself. Adara came out with cold skin and pale blue eyes, much like the bride of the Night's King. She's more like what Dern Durndon and I are envisioning. Not a corpse, and not another, but a human being transformed by cold magic. Supposedly, and by that I mean according to George Martin, the Ice Dragon story is not set in Westeros, strictly speaking, and Martin actually wrote the first version of it before he ever wrote A Game of Thrones. I like to think of the Ice Dragon as one of Old Nan's tales, a Westerosi fable that most children might know. They do have an ice dragon constellation, after all, and the world of ice and fire tells us that there are legends of ice dragons, which, again, match the description of the one in Adara's story. John compares the tunnel beneath the wall to being inside the belly of an ice dragon, so he's heard about it in some fashion. What's important to observe is that Martin has clearly been thinking for a while now about ice transformations which leave one with blue eyes and cold skin, and maybe even a connection to ice dragons. Martin likes to develop his concepts over time, and many elements of A Song of Ice and Fire first appeared in an earlier form in some of his short stories that he wrote before A Song of Ice and Fire. The Ice Dragon is one of those concepts, as is the notion of a person who is transformed by ice magic. It's actually more central to his thinking than the fire-breathing dragons, whom he almost didn't include in A Song of Ice and Fire, if you can believe that, and it's true. So when you consider this ice transformation concept and compare it with Melisandre's state of being as a fire-transformed person, we can see that they are essentially mirror images of one another. And I think we can begin to see what he's doing with this moon-pale, blue-star-eyed corpse queen. Imagine Adara, all grown up. And there's your moon-pale maiden with eyes like blue stars and magical abilities that work through the medium of ice and cold. Shadow Factory This section is brought to you by the Patreon support of the Cinder of the Citadel, wielder of the Burning Weirwood Spear and guardian of the Celestial Sow, as well as the loyal support of Archmaester Emma, founder of the Maiden Maesters, keeper of the Two-Headed Sphinx, and High Priestess of the Church of Starry Wisdom. So, what did the Knight's King and his Corpse Queen do at the Night Fort? Why, they made icy love together, but it wasn't an even exchange. Remember that when he gave his seed to her, he gave his soul as well. That's pretty much exactly what happens with Melisandre and Stannis, as a matter of fact, and this is a key point in drawing a comparison between Melisandre and the Night's Queen. 
Is the brave Sir Onion so frightened of a passing shadow? Take heart, then. Shadows only live when given birth by light, and the king's fires burn so low, I dare not draw off any more to make another son. It might well kill him. Melisandre moved closer. With another man, though. A man whose flames still burn hot and high. If you truly wish to serve your king's cause, come to my chamber one night. I could give you pleasures such as you have never known, and with your life fire, I could make... A horror! Davos retreated from her. I want no part of you, my lady, or your god. May the seven protect me. The idea of light giving birth to shadows equates nicely to our model of a solar king impregnating a moon with fiery seed, only to produce black shadow killers remembered as the moon dragons. It's remarked upon many times how drawn and haggard Stannis looks after each one of the shadow babies are created, and that symbolizes the sun being turned dark by producing the black meteors with the fire moon. Speaking in terrestrial terms, we can observe the toll that the shadow baby creation takes on Stannis and understand that he is giving Melisandre more than just his seed. Mel is drawing off of his life fires and leaving him reduced and corpse-like in return. That's essentially a mirror image of the Night's King giving his seed and soul to a moon woman, save for the ice and fire difference, of course. Danny sees a figure who is almost certainly Stannis during her House of the Undying vision, and it gives us a clue about his reduced nature. Glowing like a sunset, a red sword was raised in the hands of a blue-eyed king who cast no shadow. Most people have interpreted this shadowless, blue-eyed king as Stannis, with the idea being that he has no shadow because Melisandre has been peeling off shadows from Stannis's life essence, so he's now shadowless. We've seen that a person's shadow is something of their alter ego, the other part of themselves. Psychologists would call this the id, or the shadow self. Some part of Stannis himself is actually in that tent along with his shadow baby, murdering Renly, because Stannis later confesses that he actually has repeated dreams of the event, as if he'd been there. I'm not sure exactly where Martin is drawing a delineation between a person's shadow, their life fires, or their soul, but it's clear that Melisandre is drawing from Stannis's very life essence to make these black shadows, just as the Corpse Queen took the seed and soul of the Night's King to make... white shadows? The Others? Yes, that's exactly what I believe to be at the heart of the Night's King, Corpse Queen story. They were said to have been caught sacrificing to the others, and we know what that probably means because we've seen someone else sacrificing to the others in a clash of kings. My lord, John said quietly, as the wood closed in around them once more, Craster has no sheep, nor any sons. Mormont made no answer. At Winterfell... One of the serving women told us stories, John went on. She used to say that there were wildlings who would lay with the others to birth half-human children. Half-tales. Does Craster seem less than human to you? In half a hundred ways. He gives his sons to the wood. A long silence. Then, yes, yes, and yes, the raven muttered, strutting. Yes, Yes, yes. You knew. Smallwood told me, long ago. All the rangers know, though few will talk of it. Did my uncle know? All the rangers, Mormont repeated. 
You think I ought to stop him? Kill him, if need be? The old bear sighed. Were it only that he wished to rid himself of some mouths, I'd gladly send Yorin or Conwys to collect the boys. We could raise them to the black, and the watch would be that much the stronger. But the wildlings serve crueler gods than you or I. These boys are Craster's offerings. His prayers, if you will. Craster taunts the Night's Watch about fearing the others and the whites, saying that a godly man has no reason to fear and that you best get right with the gods, and so on and so forth. In case there was any doubt about which gods he's referring to, or what he means by getting right with the gods, here's Jon Snow talking to Gilly a little earlier in that same chapter. He gives the boys to the gods. Come the white cold, he does, and of late it comes more often. What gods? John was remembering that they'd seen no boys in Craster's keep, nor men either, save Craster himself. The cold gods, she said. The ones in the night, the white shadows. What color are their eyes? he asked her. Blue, as bright as blue stars and as cold. The final piece to the puzzle is the question of what the others are doing with Craster's boys, and the answer comes in a storm of swords right after the mutiny at Craster's keep. Gilly's mother and the raven are urging Sam to take Gilly and her son and flee. You said you'd help her. Do what Vernie says, boy. Take the girl and be quick about it. Quick, the raven said. Quick, quick, quick. Where? asked Sam, puzzled. Where should I take her? Someplace warm, the two old women said as one. Gilly was crying. Me and the babe. Please, I'll be your wife like I was Craster's. Please, Sir Crow, he's a boy, just like Nella said he'd be. If you don't take him, they will. They, said Sam, and the raven cocked its black head and echoed. They, they, they. The boy's brothers, said the old woman on the left. Craster's sons, the white cold's rising out there, Crow. I could feel it in my bones. These poor old bones don't lie. They'll be here soon, the sons. The ones who take Craster's sons are the white shadows with blue star eyes. Those are the others. They are also Craster's sons themselves, as well as the boy's brothers. There's really not much wiggle room here. Craster's sons are definitely being turned into others. The TV show shows this right out, but of course we can't really rely on the TV show to clarify the finer points of magical processes from the book canon. The show is a distinct entity from the books, and they often simplify and pare down issues relating to magic to be more suitable to the TV show format. That's putting it nicely, I guess. In this case, the books do in fact give us enough information to draw this conclusion without the show, so we can consider the show as being accurate to the books in the broad sense. And there you have it. Craster sacrifices to the others, and what that means is that he gives his male children to the others, who then transform those sons into more others, more white shadows. So when we hear that Night's King and his corpse queen were sacrificing to the others, what it probably means is that they were in fact creating others. This is actually a fairly widely held view on the fan forums, so I'm not really breaking any ground here, but rather summing up and providing the evidence in my own sort of uh, idiom, if you will. I'd also like to add that I'm not alone in thinking that the dude named Night's King probably reigned during the long night, and if so, 
The others that he made with his corpse bride might have been the very first others ever created. By the time he was caught, it might have looked like he was sacrificing to pre-existent others when perhaps he actually had created the first one 13 years prior, at the beginning of his reign, or however long it was. Old Nan says that the others first came in the cold of the long night, implying that it was a new thing the first time that they came. I'm not saying that this is definitely what happened, merely that it's both possible and plausible. There's a form friend of mine who goes by the name of Voice of the First Men, or just Voice, and he's got a couple of really great theories about the others. Google Hierarchy of the Others Last Hearth Forum, or check out the link on the text version of this episode on my WordPress page. Voice's thinking on the others shaped mine to some extent, early on in my career of a Song of Ice and Fire analysis, so I'll mention him a couple of times in this series. One of his ideas is that the Night's King may have used the Black Gate, that strange living weirwood door down in the well below the Night Fort, to deliver his offerings to the others, or perhaps that he compelled his black brothers to make the deliveries, binding them with those strange sorceries that he was said to have used. I think something like this makes a lot of sense myself. Gilly's baby, who was supposed to be given to the others, went through the Black Gate, going from north of the wall to the Night Fort, so perhaps the children of the Night's King and the Corpse Queen went the opposite direction. We know George likes to create these sort of plot echoes and inverted plot echoes. Now, there are a few important caveats to this idea of the Night's King and the Night's Queen making others. Number one, we do not know if the Night's King and Corpse Queen were the first to make others in this way, as I mentioned. Craster is doing it again now. How many before or after the Night's King and Corpse Queen? One reason to suspect that the Corpse Queen might have been the original mother of the others is that none of Craster's wives are an ice sorceress. Perhaps we needed a woman to do the ice transformation first before anyone can make white shadows, and this, this tends to be my thinking. Number two, we don't know what else is involved in the transformation. We can only surmise that the others take Craster's sons and somehow turn them into more others, but we don't know how long it takes or what other steps may be involved. Number three, there are a lot of clues connecting the others who are called the White Walkers of the Woods to the Weirwood Trees, as well as Green Seers and Children of the Forest, indicating that there is more to the story here. Full theory forthcoming, but as we go, watch for clues about trees and others. I didn't want you to think that we had solved the mystery of where the others came from as simple as that, and these are important caveats. In any case, we can see that this idea of the Corpse Queen taking the seed and soul of Night's King to make white shadows, is basically an inverted, icy parallel of Melisandre taking Stannis's life fires to make black shadows. One important difference is that the black shadows of Mel and Stannis seem to dissipate after their purpose is done, whereas those white shadows just won't go away. It could be a matter of fire consumes and ice preserves, as it's said in the books, or it could be that the white shadows are somehow shadow-bound to their icy bodies in some way that Mel's shadow babies are not. Regardless, fire moon queens birth black shadows, and at least one icy moon queen seems to birth white shadows. Besides the making shadow children with a succubus thing that Knights King and Stannis have in common, there's actually a few other parallels between those two, and these have been remarked upon by many others. See what I did there? Stannis is kind of a rebel king who sets himself up at the wall, just as Knights King did. Even better, Melisandre smiled. Necromancy animates these whites, yet they are still only dead flesh. Steel and fire will serve for them, 
The ones you call the others are something more. Demons made of snow and ice and cold, said Stannis Baratheon. The ancient enemy, the only enemy that matters. He considered Sam again. I am told that you and this wildling girl pass beneath the wall, through some magic gate. The b black gate, Sam stammered. Below the night fort. The night fort is the largest and oldest of the castles on the wall, the king said. That is where I intend to make my seat. Whilst I fight this war, you will show me this gate. Oh ho! Stannis actually plans to take the night fort, the first castle on the wall and the place where Night's King did his thing, for his seat. I'd almost call that heavy-handed, but instead we'll just say that it seems as though George has set up Stannis to parallel Night's King to a certain extent, which I believe strengthens the idea that Melisandre is set up to parallel the Corpse Queen. It's basically a sneaky way for Martin to tell us about the Corpse Queen and the Night's King through Melisandre and Stannis. For our purposes here, we're seeking to learn about this icy moon maiden of fable, and I believe that we can look to Melisandre for a basic idea of who she is, so long as we translate from fire to ice. At the very least, speaking in terms of symbolism, the appearance of these opposite types of moon women suggests the possibility of moons of ice and fire, do they not? We'd love to hear your thoughts on this, so be sure to let us know what you think. And of course, I'll be collecting all questions for our next live Q&A, which we'll be doing a couple weeks after this episode comes out. So leave your comments on the WordPress version or the YouTube version or Twitter or anywhere else you can find me. 